is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part two with John Epperson, we continue the conversation of his early life defining moments, as he calls them, seminal moments in his life that created Lipsinka and a lot of what he's done throughout his career. So I hope you enjoy this part two with John Epperson. Keep on keeping on. It's an interesting balance, I think, for some to have that. You know, when I graduated college and went to the city, I kept hearing that, you know, New York City isn't for everyone. New York City's not for everyone. Not everyone's going to make it in New York City. And not even make it in the sense of, like, fame. You know, it's more a mental <laughs> make it <laughs> emotionally. And yeah. being there, you know, for a, a number of years now, it's, it is definitely an interesting balance to see how different people handle the pace, you know, the way in which people communicate, making sure that you have a great surrounding of supporters, you know, friends, uh, you know, entourage, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, you know, everyone has a different methodology to it. And some must just vacate to thrive. Yeah, so. they do. They do. And, and I feel like it's gotten tougher to live in New York because it's just all about the money now. Yeah. And uh, when I got my first computer in 1998 and it had AOL built into it and I signed up and uh, I thought this thing is going to make me even more alienated than I already am. Huh. And it's supposed, it's supposed to connect you to people. <laughs> right. But it only does that up to a point. Right. And then in the two, around 2007, when I signed up on Facebook, I thought the same thing. This thing is going to make me even more alienated. <laughs> but I did it. It's a marketing tool. Right. I, I want to talk about um, the, your journey um, with you know, the American Ballet Theater and playing piano and then the creation of Lipsinka. If the two are tied or not, please let me know. And I'm curious what the origin is for Lipsinka, where the idea and incarnation came from within you. Well, uh, the psychological part, <laughs> we've, we've, discussed that. <laughs> we've discussed that a little bit. Yes. <laughs> But there's home movie footage of me getting in drag to make myself feel better yeah. and to deflect attention away from uh, my sisters and cousins. Um, and I probably... Uh, I was aware on some subliminal level that the best way to deal with the repressive atmosphere of Mississippi was to do something rebellious yeah. and getting in drag and poking fun at gender concepts was a good way to be rebellious, a fairly, a fairly safe way. I do remember I don't remember now what age I was, but 12 or 13, I guess. The 
the local junior chamber of commerce in the town where I grew up. The town, by the way, is called Hazelhurst, Mississippi. And Hazelhurst is probably most famous because it's the setting of a Beth Henley play and movie called Crimes of the Heart. <laughs> I'm familiar. Did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that won the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, yeah. And the movie was not filmed there, but it takes place there. And there's even a moment towards the beginning of the movie when Jessica Lange is on a bus and she looks out the window and she sees a sign that says, Welcome to Hazelhurst. Mm. Um, that's where I grew up. And the local chamber of commerce, which was all men, junior chamber of commerce, I think, JCs, they call themselves, they staged what they called a womanless wedding. And it was a benefit, I suppose, for their own organization. But the reason it was called womanless is that all of the, and it was a, a staged wedding, you know, but a comical staged wedding. And all the female parts, the bride, the mother of the bride, the maid of honor, all of that, the flower girl, were all these men in drag. <laughs> and to me, well, I just remembered it was liberating, and it, and it was like anarchy. The seeing all these men now doing this. And so that probably was a seminal moment for me when I realized, oh, wow, you can, you can do that and uh, cause an uproar, a positive uproar. Right. And uh, my mother and I watched the Carol Burnett show pretty faithfully in the 60s and 70s when I was at home on Saturday nights and uh, remember seeing Jim Bailey at Streisand. <laughs> and so that was a confirmation that this could be something even bigger and better. And then I got to college and I went to my first gay bar. Probably I was underage. It's called May's Cabaret, M-A-E apostrophe S, Cabaret, in Jackson, Mississippi, which is 30 miles north of where I grew up. And Jackson is the capital of the state. It's the largest city there. It's two, only 250,000 people, but it is the largest yeah. And there was a gay bar. And I went there one night, the first time with a friend, and danced with a man for the first time to the song, Rock the Boat, Don't Tip the Boat Over, Rock the Boat. Do you remember that song? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the jukebox. Yeah. So that was fun and liberating. And then I went again with another friend on another night, thinking it was going to be a similar evening, but they had a drag show. 
which we were not expecting. Yeah. And it was uh, a troop from Memphis. And one of them apparently is still alive and still in Memphis, called himself Bell Star and wore a 50s poodle skirt. And another one, I don't remember his name, but he also, besides the name that he had created for himself, he described himself amusingly as the only perambulating mouseketeer. Do you know what a mouseketeer was? Of course I do. <laughs> well, you're, you're in Orlando, so yeah. <laughs> how could you not? Yeah. But, but for your audience, in case they don't know, it was a TV show that Disney had in the late 50s, early 60s, called The Mouseketeers, and it was a bunch of kids, talented kids. Annette Funicello was one when she was very young, before she made any beach party movies. And a man named Bobby Burgess was a mouseketeer, and he later went on to be the dancing team on the Lawrence Welk show, Bobby and Sissy. Right. And uh, I guess this guy, who was now performing in drag in Memphis, had been a real mouseketeer on, on the Walt Disney show and had outgrown it and had drifted into <laughs> the nether regions of show business performing in drag in Memphis, Tennessee. And I didn't even know what the word perambulating meant. <laughs> it took me a while to find out and it meant walking and standing, which makes it extra funny. You know, <laughs> so he was calling himself the only walking and standing mouseketeer. <laughs> oh my God. But they performed and they lip synced. Oh, and I left something out, but I'll go back to that. So I found their performance absolutely frightening, and I didn't know why. But as I look back now, it was frightening because I saw myself. You know, I saw my own future and didn't know it. And the fact that it was in a gay bar and related to gay culture which at that point, even though I was there, was still very frightening and forbidden and taboo and secretive and hidden and all of that. And we're talking about Jackson, Mississippi, mind you. We're not talking about New York City. So all that was very scary. I'm going to backtrack a little and tell you that when I was very young, in the late 50s, my father had a record album, and this is real, you can look it up on Google. The album was called For Men Only, and the cover of it has a picture of Jane Mansfield on all fours looking up at the camera, and she's wearing a black cat suit, which nowadays would be called a unitard, I guess. <laughs> and... uh She's not on the album, you know, she's not performing or singing on the album, but Jane's picture was on a lot of record albums at the time just to help sell them. And uh, 
my sisters would lip sync to those records and perform for me and my mother, put on a show. And my mother called it pantomime. She didn't call it lip syncing. But I think that made a big impression on me as a kid. You know, putting on a show, lip syncing to female voices was all fascinating to me. So I think that that has something to do with what I ultimately decided to do myself. But back to the story about the gay bar in 73. So I saw this drag troupe from Memphis. Very scary. And I didn't go back there for about 12 months. But in that intervening 12 months, I was going to the school library and reading Time and Newsweek every week, especially the art section, and saw a review uh, of a New York stage performance by a man named Charles Ludlam, who was doing his version of Camille in drag. And that so impressed me that he was in, it was either Time or Newsweek, one or the other. Both of them were very reputable at the time. And I thought, well, see, here's somebody doing that, and they're being praised for it in a major publication, but they're in New York, where you can call that art, and there's no stigma attached to it. But also, his piece was described as ridiculous theater, which was a concept that I had never heard of before. Mm. And and by then, I had also heard of absurd theater, Albie and Ionesco. So I made friends with this um, person who, uh, a man named Dwight Adcock, he's dead now, but he had been a theater major at Millsaps College, which is also in Jackson. It's still there, as well as the place I went to. And they were kind of sister colleges. They weren't far from one another, but they had a more thriving theater scene at Millsaps. And I had seen this guy, Dwight Adcock, on stage, and I got friendly with him, and he was very flamboyant and funny. And he asked me if I ever went to see the drag shows at May's Cabaret. And I said, well, I went to one, but I didn't like it. That was 12 months ago. And he said, well, you have to go again because it's theater. Well, you see, I hadn't thought of it that way. Mm. I hadn't thought of it as theater and that I could look at it with an objective eye as opposed to a subjective eye. And so I went back and looked at it in a whole new way. And I didn't perform there ever. 
but and I didn't think that the people doing it always had a sense of humor about what they were doing. Obviously, the one who called himself a perambulating musketeer had a sense of humor, but right. a lot of them, a lot of them were what are now called pageant queens. You know, where they just wanted to look pretty and stand and lip sync to Dionne Warwick or Connie Francis. Right. But some of them, some of them had a take, a point of view other than that. And uh, even the ones who were very serious, you know, it was possible to look at that as absurd theater. And so all of that was brewing in my head when I came to New York. And so many other things then I, you know, began to see and experience. I, was, I moved to New York in 78, and within the first few days I saw Divine on stage. Right. Knew about Divine. I had not seen any of his movies, but I knew about him and saw him on stage in a play written by Tom Ian, who a few years later went on to write Dreamgirls, the musical, and this is legit theater, off-Broadway legit theater. And one of the fun things about that show, which was called The Neon Woman, is that a place called Hurrah. Believe it or not, it was only steps away from the stage door of what used to be called the New York State Theater at Lincoln Center, and which I still call the New York State Theater. I will not call it by its other name. Uh, <laughs> which Mark Morris calls the Scrooge McDuck Theater. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this was a nightclub on the west side, you know, a wild nightclub. And so Devine was doing this show there. And he he wasn't the only actor in the show. But then the show was over, and you stood up, and the lights changed, and the music came on, and it was a disco because we were sitting on the floor watching the show. Stood up, and it was a disco. This was 78. This was when Studio 54 was at its peak. Right. So that was just a blast, you know, and I miss that New York. I don't see anything like that happening. Well, nothing's happening in New York now, but (laughs) before all of this happened, before all of this happened, I don't think there was anything quite like that. Right. And uh, someone then told me, oh, you need to see a movie called Outrageous. And so I saw the movie when I got the chance, and that was a real eye-opener. That's a movie about drag performance that I think is still the best feature film about the life of a drag performer. Um, it's it's a, uh, the life of a drag performer in the 70s. And, but some things haven't changed. And, and then, well, I was being exposed to so much, uh, you know, I was seeing everything I could afford to see. And then in the summer of 81... Well, we haven't even talked about the piano stuff, but, but in 1980, I started working at American Ballet Theater full-time, and right. in the summer of 81, there was a troupe of dancers from a smaller troupe 
that went to Europe, and I went with them. And we had a fantastic tour of Italy and France. And at the end of the tour, I was on my own, and I went to Paris, where I hooked up with a friend who came over. And I went to see... I don't think my friend went, and I guess I went on my own, but I went to, to this place that I hope is still there. I know the owner died not maybe a year ago. It's called Michou, M-I-C-H-O-U, and that was the name of the owner. I'm hoping since he died that the place can still thrive, although I know Paris is struggling right now. But at Michou, which was kind of a tourist trap for French tourists, uh, it was a cabaret. They served food and drinks, and it was probably not great food, and it was probably overpriced. But the, the big attraction was the show, because the waiter would come, and he would take your order. And then about 35 minutes later, the waiter... 35 minutes later, the waiter would be on stage as Eliza Minnelli, as Sophia Loren, as Zizi Jean-Mer, as Josephine Baker, <laughs> and, and lip-syncing to them. And that was just our waiter. There were other waiters who were impersonating French stars that I was not familiar with. And they were all lip-syncing there was only one who was doing something out, out of the box. He was lip-syncing, I believe it was to a recording of Carmen, the opera. But he was a big, heavy-set guy. He looked a little bit like Divine, and he was a comic. The others were more straightforward celebrity impersonation. Right. But the fact that they were lip-syncing and doing it really well, I thought better than what I had been accustomed to. That started me thinking, hmm, hmm, they're doing lip-syncing in Paris, and it's Paris, and uh, maybe I can even do it better than them. But I didn't want to be a celebrity impersonator, although I admire that a lot. The movie Outrageous is about a celebrity impersonator who did not lip-sync, by the way. Craig Russell, he was a real singer. If you've never seen that movie, it's on YouTube for free. Quote for free, unquote. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, it's very good. He's excellent. But these people were lip-syncing. And so I started thinking, there's maybe something to this. So I kept thinking about it, and I was then, and I am now, a movie buff, but this was early 80s when there were still a lot of movie theaters in New York and a lot of revival houses. And there was a revival house on Broadway, just north of Lincoln Center, that had been an old neighborhood movie theater back in the day, but it was still standing and it was a successful revival house called the Regency. And they showed a different double bill every three or four days. And I 
I was there a lot. It was like my temple. Right. And they were showing a movie that I had seen the title of, an MGM musical with Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly. And I wanted to see it because it was MGM, produced by Arthur Freed, who made all the great MGM musicals, and the two stars, and written by Comden and Green, and I, had, I knew who they were, of course. So I went to the movie, and this woman came on who I had never heard of, and her name was Dolores Gray. And she burns up the screen. She looks fantastic. Her performance style is amazing. The voice is beautiful. And she's funny. She's sexy. And as I was watching that, I thought to myself, all right, I'm not going to impersonate Barbara Streisand. I'm not going to impersonate Cher. I'm going to impersonate someone that people don't remember, and it's that woman. <laughs> and, and so that combined with the lip-syncing notion and my fascination with fashion modeling as a kind of theater and fashion models from the 50s and 60s who had exotic names one-named models like Dovima and Verushka and Wilhelmina and Apollonia, I thought, well, if I'm going to do lip-syncing, I need to come up with a name that tells the audience that what I'm doing, and I have a sense of humor about what I'm doing, but I also want it to sound chic, and I want it to sound like a one-named fashion model. And that's how I came up with the name, and the name is the concept. And the reason it's spelled in a funny way is because I thought that would make it look more like a fashion model. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. So, this is a, these are just some of the things that were going through my head that created this. Right. But, some of the big, some of the bigger points anyway. No, I, I appreciate you sharing this. It's so nice to get a full, you know, full rounded view on the incarnation of it. So. <clears throat> now we're coming up on to about an hour. We are. Clay. <laughs> we are. I will tell you a little bit about American Ballet Theater and then I should ring off if that's all right. It's completely fine. When I was in school in Mississippi, in my second year, my sophomore year, I realized they had a program there called Work Study. And I could actually make a little money doing at what I know how to do, which is play the piano. So I uh, started working with a singing teacher. Well, more than one. And the school then paid me a little money for doing that. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to have some pocket money. We live in a capitalist society, for better or worse, you need money in order to survive. And so right. <laughs> and so I did it. <clears throat> I hate talking about money, but there we are. Right, right. And then 
There were some other teach, singing teachers who were associated with the school, but they taught off campus, and they needed someone, I found out. So I started working for them. I worked. For, they, were, they were a married couple, and they both taught singing, and they each had their own separate studio in the same small building, and I worked for the man, Mr. McCool, Chuck McCool. He was very nice. And... I was making extra money that way, and I liked having some pocket money because then I could go to the movies more often and buy record albums and books and go to New Orleans and buy magazines and see shows. And New Orleans was becoming an important cultural outlet for me because there were movies to see there that you couldn't see in Jackson and sheet music stores that they didn't have in Jackson. And uh, uh, Mrs. McCool had her own pianist, a woman named Frank Ray Jones, which is a funny Mississippi name, Frank Ray for a woman. And Frank Ray was also working at various places, and she was working at what was called the Jackson Ballet Guild which was the local ballet company. And the Jackson Ballet Guild had hired a new artistic director from New York, a woman who called herself Thalia Mara, although that was not her real name. But she had run a school in New York that folded. The rumor was that Robert Kennedy had been a big supporter of hers, and after he was killed in her school, was struggling. So she still, Dahlia Mario was still a very ambitious woman and she wanted to make her mark somewhere and so she came to Jackson and she did. She made her mark there. They ultimately named the the city auditorium after her. But, so this was 75, I think, and because she had arrived and things were changing there and they were having more classes and they needed more pianists and so I started working there to make some extra money and found that I was adept at it. And then I graduated from college and I went to Denver for a while and I went to New York, came to New York for a while. And being in New York only for about two or three months, I realized, oh, I'm in order to make it here, I'm going to need more money. And so... I went back to Mississippi, and my plan was that I would work there for a year and then come to New York on my own terms, which is what I did. But that year I worked, I worked there. I went back there and also started taking dance class because I realized if I was going to make it in New York, I needed to know something about dancing myself. And in that year the movie The Turning Point came out. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, I didn't. I think it was 77 or 78. It was a big hit. It was about the ballet world with Shirley MacLaine and Anne Bancroft and Baryshnikov. And it featured dancers from American Ballet Theater. I think in the movie it's called The American Ballet Company, but they were using artists from American Ballet Theater. Also in that 
intervening 12 months, Baryshnikov and Gelsey Kirkland did the Nutcracker on PBS. And she was obviously brilliant. And to my mind, she was, she seemed like the Judy Garland of ballet, this incredible artist who could do anything. Unique and unusual. And then on, there was another thing on PBS, live from Lincoln Center, that was an entire evening of American Ballet Theater. And there she was again, dancing Balanchine's theme and variations with Baryshnikov. That is on YouTube. You can see it. It's incredible. And then they interviewed her, and I was even more fascinated by her and I already had my plan to go to New York, but then my plan said, I'm going to get a job at American Ballet Theater. And sooner or later, I will meet Gilsey Kirkland, I will work with her, and I will meet the director, Herbert Ross, who made the movie The Turning Point, and he will make me the movie star I want to be. Hmm. Came to New York, got a job very quickly there, playing the piano for their school, and two years later, well, two years went by, and in those intervening two years, I started playing company class, and then they realized I could play rehearsals. And in 1980, spring of 1980, they were having their 40th anniversary. And all these stars from all over the world were coming to perform and two of the stars were Rudolf Nureyev and Carla Fracci, who were to dance a sequence from Giselle at this gala. And they were scheduled to work in Studio One on West 61st Street. The building isn't there anymore, but it's in the movie The Turning Point. And I happened to be standing in the lobby. I don't remember why, but the pianist for their rehearsal didn't show up. Huh. I don't, I never, I never found out why, but it was, it, it's very easy to get confused there when schedules are changing and people get injured and suddenly everything has to change. So, and they were also working over at the opera house. They weren't just working on 61st street. So, and I happened to be standing there and the conductor who was to conduct the rehearsal and then the performance saw me and although I had never really done anything with him, he said, I need somebody to play this, and I'll get you through it. And Giselle is pretty easy to play in terms of the notes, but it changes tempo constantly. He was a great conductor. His name was John Lanchberry. He's dead now. And he worked on a lot of movies, including The Turning Point. But... I played that rehearsal, Sight Red Giselle, and he did get me through it. He, Before each section, he would say, this is going to be in three, or this is going to be in two, and so it was very clear. Yeah. And, and I was in the room with Rudolf Nureyev, you know, playing the piano for him. It was, it was crazy. And I think... That was probably the moment that Lance Perry realized, oh, if I ever need someone, this kid can fill in. 
and then one of the pianists left. I don't know why. One of their full-time pianists left, and so he hired me. And then in the summer of 1980, then I became a full-time member of the company. And Barishnikov was the brand-new artistic director. But oddly, there was some kind of contractual dispute, and I never saw John Lanchberry ever again, oh. which is too bad. Uh, <clears throat> my life might have been different if he had lived, because he was the one who wanted me there. And uh, that was really exciting. You know, I made this goal for myself. I achieved it. But I quickly realized that that ceiling has a very, that, what am I saying, that job has a very low ceiling. You know, you don't really advance in that job. Right. Unless you become a conductor. Right. And even then, ballet conductors don't achieve fame. They may make money, but they don't achieve fame. Right. Not like, not like uh, Philharmonic Orchestra conductors, not like uh, Zubin Maida or Leonard Bernstein. Hmm. Uh, and I still hadn't met Herbert Ross, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I did finally meet Herbert Ross, and... I was doing a show, a Lipsinka performance in 1995. And by then I had met this man named Wallace Potts, who was, had such an interesting life himself. But Wallace kind of took me under his wing as a younger brother. And he knew Herbert Ross, and he got Herbert Ross to come see this performance that I was doing in Santa Monica. And then Herbert Ross contacted Wallace and said, bring John Epperson for dinner. And we went for dinner and Herbert Ross said, I'm going to have a movie written for you. And he did. He had a movie written for me. And Bruce Valanche was the writer. And it was to be the American remake of the Pedro Almodovar film, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Did you ever hear of that movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And Whoopi Goldberg was going to be the star. Herbert had just made a movie with her called Boys on the Side. And uh, we did do a reading of the script for TriStar, and they passed on it. And Herbert wanted to try to take it somewhere else, but he, he was going through marital difficulties. He was married to Lee Radziwill. Jackie Kennedy's sister, yeah. and uh, and then he got sick and he died, and so that project never happened. But uh, I do appreciate that he wanted to make it happen, so it felt like a, a bit of an achievement of a goal. But I ultimately was cast in the movie Black Swan, so I did get to be in a ballet film. Right, I remember that. But Women on the Verge was going to be a Lipsinka appearance. Uh, the way Bruce, the way Bruce had written it was, I was kind of Whoopi's subconscious alter ego, and the movie was going to be hot, called High Strong. And every time Whoopi got anxious or nervous, Lipsinka would appear as a kind of Greek chorus figure, 
in her head and comment on the action. <laughs> it was a, a very cute idea. At one point, Lip Syncing was to come out of the fountain at the Four Seasons, like, like an Esther Williams movie. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and this was, this was all something that Herbert Ross could have done. I mean, Herbert Ross was very talented at that kind of thing. I guess you know, know that he choreographed and probably directed and conceived the musical numbers in the movie Funny Girl. Right. You know, that incredible moment when at the end of Don't Rain on My Parade when she's standing on the tugboat deck and holding up her bouquet of yellow flowers mirroring this real Statue of Liberty. Yeah. That was Herbert Ross. I love it. I love it. So there's part of my American Ballet Theater story. There's a lot more to tell. I really, I really do need to write a book. Everybody keeps telling me I should write a book because I've, I've straddled so many worlds. You really have. And, you and, know, I, will, and I will write that book. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really want to try to sell my book. I just want someone to buy it. I don't, a <laughs> publisher. You know, I, I don't know how to or want to make a presentation. Right, right. But, but some people say, well, if you just write it, two or three chapters and give them an outline, it may be enough. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, shoot, this would be the first uh, couple chapters if you transcribe this <laughs> conversation. <laughs> That's great. That's, thank you for giving us such a slice here of uh, all the worlds you've <laughs> gone between. I have another appointment in 45 minutes, Clay, so I'm going to have to ring off, but hey. I, I think you've gotten quite a bit here. I appreciate you, John. Thank you for taking this time. I do have one final question, and it can be short. Um, I ask this question with everyone. Metaphorically speaking, is there a word or a phrase that you would put on a billboard for millions of people to see? A quote, a short story, a word, anything come to mind? Don't let fear stop you. Hmm. I love that. That's what I would say. <clears throat> Lip Sync it was created really out of a combination of fear and desire. I had the desire to be on stage, but I didn't have proper training. And I had too many submerged emotional problems and didn't know how to go to an audition. And so I thought, well, if I create this person, then I'm hiding not just behind a facade of makeup, but also I'm hiding behind someone else's voice. Right. And that achieved a level of something for me, but it also has limited me. And it's been a struggle to get people to believe that I can do anything else. So that's now we're back to that uh, subject of ambivalence where we started. Right, it's a full circle <laughs> of life. The beginning of this. <laughs> yeah, fear, so, fear, fear, and desire. Yeah, it's a powerful combination. That might be the title of your book. Uh, I thought, I've been thinking the title might be Fab Fabulous Frightened Me. Ooh, I like that better. 
<laughs> oh, goodness, John. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you mm. taking the time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Let me know when it's going to appear. 100%. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, John Epperson. <laughs> You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. <laughs>